Well, today we're going to continue in our sermon series in Genesis chapters 37 to 50 in a series we've titled, Worst Thing, Best Thing. Now, you know, if you've been around Antioch at all, that art is important to us. And that's not because we're trying to be cool. It's because God is creator. Therefore, everything creative flows from him. And so let me give an explanation to you as to what this artwork represents. So it was created by Tammy State, and I kind of envisioned it, but it's meant to geometrically represent the story of Joseph. The bottom of the X that you see is representative of the pit that Joseph is thrown into. There you see a crown upside down. But at the same time, the inversion of that pit, which is at the top of the X, represents Joseph's rise to power in Egypt. And so that's why you see a crown right side up. Thus God takes the very worst thing, the demise of Joseph and the sin of his family, and he turns it into the very best thing, the exaltation of Joseph and the salvation of God's people. And of course, this ultimately points us to the much greater worst thing, best thing, the Son of God on a cross, and yet at the same time bringing salvation to the world. So I hope that's a helpful creative vision for you as you journey through this sermon series. This morning I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 39 verses 1 through 23. Young disciples, that's the first answer you need for your worksheets. You can find that on page 33 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So the focus of today's sermon is one thing, and yet because I am a preacher, I'm actually going to talk about three things. How you get the one thing, how you keep the one thing, and how you grow the one thing. Since today's passage is so long, rather than standing it to read it all at once, I will be reading it verse by verse as we go along. But let us now, intentionally, do this with me, posture our hearts in such a way that we can say, in regard to God's word, the Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Thanks be to God. Well, the first sermon series I ever did was as a youth minister in college. That's dangerous, right? You all want to know what the title of it was? Scrat, the saber-toothed squirrel. That's right. You know you want to hear it. I know it sounds pretty terrible, but you may find that I'm actually not so far from where I started. (laughs) Some of you all know Scrat from the animated films Ice Age. This is a franchise that led to six films and eight short videos. So anybody remember how the whole thing began, how Ice Age started, what pulled us all into it? Yeah, something coming to mind? With Scrat, the saber-toothed squirrel, and his precious what? Acorn, which he tries to jam into the ice for safekeeping, which cracks the ice which dislodges continental glaciers, which commences the end of the Ice Age, okay? And then the comic thread that holds all the films and all the shorts together is Scrat and his elusive pursuit of one thing, his precious what? That's right. In fact, everything about Scrat was created to complement this one thing, his two massive eyes, To find the acorn. His two pointed teeth and long snout for carrying the acorn. His two big back legs for running 
with the acorn. His two tiny front legs for holding the acorn up to his mouth. His fox-like tail to maneuver and evade others trying to get his acorn. And finally, his tiny brain that has no room for anything else besides what? His acorn. And yet as funny as that may be, for over 15 years now, I have found in Scrat a profound parallel to the follower of Jesus Christ. I think it's captured by the words of Psalm 27. One thing I have asked from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You see, I think the follower of Jesus is to be marked by one overarching and ever-increasing desire. Him. Him. Knowing Him. Having Him. Loving and being loved by Him. And one day seeing Him face to face. So young disciples, this is the one thing that you're looking for for your worksheet this morning. Now this is not to say that all other desires disappear. You know, that would be more like Buddhism than Christianity, right? But it's this, it's that they are then defined and ordered according to the one thing. Him. That, that is, they're, they're formed. Like everything in life that you love and desire becomes conformed to his desire. And then you see life through the lens of that desire. They're ordered. They're defined according to him. And so then the question is, how do you get this one thing? And then how do you keep it? And then how do you grow it? Well, I think Genesis 39 speaks to that. And it begins by setting up an intentional contrast between Joseph and Judah. Those of you who were here last week heard this crazy story about Judah and Tamar. And it seemed kind of strange for the story of Joseph to be interrupted by chapter 38 in this weird aside about Judah. Anybody notice that? Like, what's up with that? But in Judah, you see a man whose one thing is the wrong thing. His desire is for himself and his dreams and the life he wants apart from God. And well, we saw last week what God had to do in order to rescue Judah from himself. But in Joseph, we see a man whose one thing is the right thing. His desire is for God and God's dreams and a life that walks with God as it was intended right here at the beginning of this book, Genesis. And God doesn't have to train wreck Joseph's life in order to rescue him unto the one thing. He only has to help Joseph keep the one thing and then grow the one thing. So the question is, at the beginning of this sermon this morning, how do you get the one thing? Where does this start? And this is the application that we're going to start with this morning. We read beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now to answer how Joseph got the one thing. Pivots on a phrase that we're going to see often in the rest of Genesis. The Lord was with 
Joseph. So young disciples, this is why Joseph was successful. The Lord was with him. And this refers to the gracious, unearned favor of God on Joseph's life. And what is at the heart of that favor? What does it really mean to have God's blessing on your life? Well, it's not that the Lord does something for you, although it may involve that. It's that the Lord is with you, not separated from you, but with you. You have him. Now, how Joseph got him goes back to chapter 37. So remember there we saw that Joseph, even though he was the second to youngest brother, was chosen as the recipient of God's dreams for the world. And even though he was probably in a cage stage, that is, probably needing to be put into a cage, figuratively speaking, until he could use his zeal to build others up instead of provoke them, it's clear that he was captivated by God's gracious work in his life. It's why all kinds of craziness can break loose in the church, but if there is at least one new believer, it will do you good. Because they are so captivated by the wonder of every nook and cranny of God's word. And by the, the beauty of getting to be in a community where you can, you can be honest and people don't condemn you or judge you. All these wonderful things, they, their, their mind and heart is just so open and captivated by it all. This is Joseph. But as is often the case with new believers, as part of or not long after conversion comes a painful trial. And so to use biblical imagery, it's like a scorching heat that, that comes down and tests the sapling to see if it actually has roots. And I suppose in light of God's plan of epic proportions for Joseph, he allows a trial of epic proportions for Joseph. The pit, the betrayal, the slavery. You can think of it like this. You get on an airplane, you go to the potty, you push the button, is there a slow swirl? No, man. Especially the first time you've been on a plane. That thing will suction through there and you think it's about to take you with it, right? This is the identity loss, the trauma that enters into Joseph's life. It's not a slow swirl. It's instant, okay? And yet, if there are truly roots, then the new believer will turn his or her eyes to God instead of away from him. And they will then see that what? He is still with them. And they will begin to learn of the one load-bearing wall in the life of faith. That difficulty does not mean desertion. That silence does not mean absence. And that hiddenness does not mean meaninglessness. Even the worst thing in God's hands can be the best thing. And so Joseph discovers this very thing as one, he immediately becomes a servant of Potiphar, one of the most powerful men and one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world. And two, he immediately becomes successful. He literally, the word is, prospers. This is the gracious, unearned favor of God helps him to earn and receive the favor of man even in terrible circumstances. He's becoming the person of Psalm 1. In all that he does, he prospers. So just look at this, verse 3. 
His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So God's gracious work in Joseph's life is so evident that it even blesses the unbelievers around Joseph. So much so that they recognize what? Like that the Lord was with him. Like this is the first real glimpse that we get of God's global mission and his promise to Abraham. That through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And when those families bless the seed of Abraham, they will get to share in that blessing. So how do you think this practically worked, though? Like, was it that Joseph was a lazy servant, but he held on to his dreams that one day Potiphar would finally see his potential and help him realize it? Like, no way. Like, Joseph worked. Young disciples, this might be a a thing that you add to why Joseph was successful. Not just he had God's blessing, but the dude worked hard. And he did his work well. Just like he had been a faithful overseer for his father, now he was for Potiphar, too. To the point where all Potiphar had to do every day was like roll out of bed and eat three meals. That's it. I would be happy to have someone helping me in life like that. You know what I'm saying? This is is great stuff that Joseph is doing. And so what comes into view that's easy to miss is the godly use of power. One of the specific expressions of God prospering Joseph, and this is true for all believers to some extent, is power. Now, power in itself is not evil, but how it's used can be for good or evil. So let me give you this example. In Judah, we see a prosperous man using his power to oppress a vulnerable woman, Tamar. And yet then in Potiphar's wife, we see a prosperous woman using her power to oppress a vulnerable man, Joseph. So remember how Judah gave that two-word command for Tamar? Take, burn. You remember that last week? Well, Potiphar's wife will also give a two-word command. When we read, she says to him, lie with me, in the Hebrew, it's actually something more like down sex. See the parallel there? Now, Joseph could respond in kind like he has the power over the whole household. Like, he's been given this. Like, he could use that to embezzle. Like, he could use that to revolt. He could use that to have fun with Potiphar's wife. Sin always corrupts power. But instead, what he does, what does he use it for? What do you see there? He he has dominion over what he's been given, and he's fruitful and multiplies it for God's glory. There we go, right back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. And this is what happens when you get the one thing. When your deepest desire is God himself, then whatever power you've been given, you use it not to serve yourself, but to bless others. That's the right use of power. Now, You might say, you know, 
I hear that, but I don't really have a lot of power. I'm not, I'm not a high up person. I'm a stay at home mom. Or I'm at the bottom of the org chart. Or I'm not a pastor or a deacon or facilitator in the church. You know, if I could get power, then I would really use it. But I don't know about that. Like God says, like, I may have given you a little thing, but be faithful in a little thing and I'll give you more. I think that if the people of Antioch Church went out into this city each week, and if the distributed of Antioch Church went out among the nations each week, and if we did nothing more than seek to take the little bits of power that we've been given in our home, and our street, and our vocation, and our money, and our free time, and we use that for good, not for ourselves, but to bless others, then you know what would happen? The families of the earth would encounter the seed of Abraham and they would get to share in its blessing. Whether or not they come to believe in him, they'll be drawn to him. They'll engage with him through you. But whether or not they believe, they will get a little bit of a taste of what it's like that the seed of Abraham was come to bless the families of the world. You see, that's what happens when you get the one thing. But then the next matter of concern becomes this. How do you keep the one thing? Well, the author continues in verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. All right, here we go, y'all. Like, this is the true love waits passage of the Bible, okay? <laughs> Unbelievable temptation here. Why? Well, he's a young man with sexual desire, of course. But I believe it's more than that. You think about this. Joseph has suffered terribly. And when you have been in a difficult place in your life and temptation comes your way, It's so easy to think what? I kind of deserve this. You know, I kind of deserve this. But more than that, he's being commanded here. And Joseph has proven himself as a compliant servant. And so he could think to himself, well, I want to be a good servant. I may just do what I'm being told here. But the temptation goes further. He's being, having been given everything else in the household. And so to have one thing not given to him, he could think, well, God's holding out on me. You think, well, how did you get to that? That's, that's, reading, that's kind of reading way too far into the text. Well, think about Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve look around at all that God had given them, sees one thing that he didn't, and they think, oh, God's holding out on us. We want that thing. This is a temptation for Joseph here. But even further than that, she does this day after day. And I tell you what, man, day after day this happens, you might come in and just haven't had a bad day. 
Right? You didn't sleep well last night. Maybe you and the Lord are struggling a little bit. And the temptation is so much easier. There's a, there's a, a low point in your hedge. And just on that day, she gets you. He says, I give in already. It's a temptation that's on the table here. How does he possibly overcome this? Well, in one regard, we can look to the book of Proverbs. It literally devotes three chapters to warnings against adultery. And it even uses the imagery of a young man and a seductress. We don't have time to read them all, but they conclude like this. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You see, Joseph overcomes the temptation in part because he knows the warnings of wisdom. This is great wickedness and sin against God. It's not okay. And y'all, this is the clarity of God's word and God's spirit. Like the world doesn't have these things to know what is right and wrong, but we do. And they help us to distinguish between good and evil. So Joseph knows not to turn aside to her ways or to stray into her paths. He does not listen to her. He does not cuddle with her. He does not flirt with her or be around her. He doesn't play around with temptation. However, I think that there's more to answering this question of how Joseph overcame the temptation. And I think that if we stop here, it might communicate at least a couple of things. First, it might communicate that fighting temptation is mostly just a matter of sheer will. Of of wrestling that temptation down like a greased pig and putting it in submission. Now I use that phrase, you all think it's figurative, but I grew up in a country where they actually do things like wrestle down greased pigs. Okay? If you don't know what I'm talking about, just YouTube it. Okay? Literally, they take grease, they cover a pig with that grease, they let it loose, and then they let loose a bunch of children to try to go catch the greased pig, wrestle it down. Think about catching a greased pig, that thing will pop out. You got him by the leg, pop, you get him by the tail, pop, get him by the head, pops out. You hold him up, bloop, he goes through. And if you do actually finally ever get him down, that thing will scream bloody murder and give you nightmares, okay? That's what it's like to try to wrestle a greased pig. And so if fighting temptation is just a matter of sheer will, first of all, let me know how that works out for you, okay? And second of all, if you do finally wrestle down that pig, guess what will happen? Very likely, it will lead to pride because you and your own strength mastered that temptation. And then you've fallen into another temptation. All right? But if we stop here, it might communicate this also. It might communicate that the Bible's perspective on temptation is that it's always a matter of women tempting men. And even though we should all be vigilant against the kind of emotional affairs that then lead up to sexual affairs, when we treat all women as seductresses, we follow hard on the sin of Adam. Remember what Adam did first thing when God called him on his sin? He said, the woman you gave me made me do this. Remember that? And so then what happens is we start coming up with all these extra biblical rules And that makes us more like Muslims than Christians, okay? And they keep us from having what? 
intentional gospel relationships between men and women. I'm going to be honest with you. I think men and women, believers, can be friends and not be going down a path to ruin their lives. Now, there is danger there, sure. But it doesn't, the declaration of our church is like intentional gospel relationships between men over here and women over here. No, it's not. It's all of us together. We're family. Okay? So I think if we stop here, man, we're going to limit ourselves from those intentional gospel relationships, those friendships. And here's the thing. You're going to think, well, you're getting off into culture. You're, you're referring to culture. stuff. No, no, no. I'm, I'm in the word here. Listen to this. You know who Joseph has more in common with than Abraham and Isaac in regard to wicked sexual advances? Their wives, Sarah and Rebekah. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12 and 26? They were taken as sexual trophies by pagan kings. See that? So when the Bible speaks to temptation, it's speaking to all of us. It's speaking to all of us. Okay? So let's go further in our understanding and application of Joseph's victory here. Verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was in there, she caught him by his garment, saying... Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So young disciples, there's the answer to your question of what Joseph did when he was tempted. So make no mistake here. Joseph might be running, but he ain't no coward. Okay? It takes courage to run away. To remove the temptation entirely. And he literally does what the New Testament echoes so often with one word when it comes to sin. Flee! Like, run away! And this was the ultimate test. Man, like, feel the drama of these words from Proverbs 7, which may be written even in a reflection of this story. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. Like, you know how he says no to that flood of passion? Because he's already been saying no over and over and over. Like if he had been flirting and fantasizing with Potiphar's wife leading up to this, there is no way he could suddenly steel himself against this moment, okay? And see, that's what I'm ultimately getting at here. Like this was not a matter of Joseph progressively decreasing his desire for her. It was a matter of him progressively increasing his desire for God, for the one thing. So think of it like this. Back in Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel and falls in love with her. Y'all remember that? But her father Laban says Jacob has to work how long? Seven years in order to marry her. Seven years! I mean, that's what I'm going to do when a boy asks for any of my girls in marriage. You go to work for seven years, buddy. Show me you got some income. All right? Preach. Well, 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 well. But amazingly, Genesis tells us that those seven years, quote, seem to Jacob but a few days. Like, how is that possible? Because, Genesis continues, 
because of the love that he had for her. You see, his desire for her was so great that enduring seven years of hard labor felt like a joy. Glad to do it. A few days. You see, Joseph's desire for God was so great that giving up a moment of pleasure actually felt like a joy. I'm so glad I did that. Lord, I don't want to sin against you. I want to be with you. I know my union with you is set forever on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross. But my communion with you can ebb and flow like the ocean's tide. And I don't want it to flow away. I want it to come in. I want to be with you. I want to know you. And so it was a joy to have said no to this. And that is the key to overcoming temptation. This is why God allows temptation to come our way. It's the perfect scenario for revealing our desire. This is why when I give in to temptation, yeah, that's right, I'm the preacher and I give in to temptation sometimes to confess my sins. When I give in to temptation and when I pastor people who have given in to temptation, I don't heap up shame even more by saying, well, stop it and try harder. No, man, I say something like this, like, okay, let's see why your desire for the one thing has drifted away into this. And let's see how the fulfillment of that one thing is so much better than this lesser desire. And in an ongoing process of repentance and faith, let's ask God together to do what only He can do. Change you at the level of deepest desire. I'm not interested in anybody rearranging the chairs on the surface of their lives and not dealing with their deepest desires. Only God can get down there and change those things, but he is willing to if we will walk toward him in repentance and faith and ask him to do that work. And so that's how I think that you keep the one thing. Obviously, God keeps us by his forever and sustaining grace. But our part in it is to keep bringing ourselves before him at the level of deepest desire and then acting on it even when we don't feel it. And this is why I want to describe to you how I often stand in gatherings like this and worship. It's not because I'm, I mean, anybody else besides me look up here at the liturgy or the songs and go, I don't know if I can say that. I don't know if I can sing that. I'm not feeling that right now. I did not live that this week. I surrender all. No, I don't. Anybody ever heard that? You start to sing that song and be like, no, I don't know if I can sing that. I don't know. I've got some things I'm holding back. Okay. But I think we can still worship because in those moments we, we are singing, we are saying what we want. God, I know it's not true of me, but I want it to be true of me. And so I'll still say it and I'll still sing it as an act of faith that you will change me at the level of deepest desire. And I believe that you can do that too. May you be encouraged by that today, church. But let's take one more step. Not just how you get the one thing or keep the one thing, but how you grow the one thing. That would be awesome if we could end the story in verse 12 and talk about how how fighting off temptation means like you'll be admired and blessed and happy. Everything will go great for you. But... Verse 13, and as soon as she saw that she had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, 
See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid his garment up by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Young disciples, here's an answer for your worksheet. The end of the story, this is where Joseph ended up, in prison. Now, sometimes when I'm preaching, I have this moment where I'm, where I'm preparing a sermon. I have this moment where I'm like thinking in gifs or gifs, whatever, however you say that word. You know, we'll divide the room on that. But I know I can't like speak in a, in a gif, so let me just describe my favorite gif in the whole world to you. It's this one with John Piper. Yeah, there are John Piper gifs out there. If you haven't ex- discovered this, you should. Pretty awesome. But he's like, he's like doing this number, and then he goes, Gah! like that. <laughs> I love that. I find excuses all day to just send that to people. It's like not even relevant to the thread. It's just John Piper going, do it again. And then he does it over and over. You know how it plays over and over and over. So that's the gift that came to mind here as I was preparing this sermon this week. Like, listen, please don't Instagram Joseph's story, okay? Like, you know that he's not sitting in this prison like, thank you, Lord. Take a selfie. This is so great. How can I quote some happy part of the scriptures? No, man, he has got to be like, seriously, God? After, after doing the right thing to honor you, after another time I'm trying to be faithful to you and I get my robe ripped off again, like, Gah! you know, there's got to be some measure of that going on right here for him. But in a sense, there's no surprise. Because twisted desire, whether it's fulfilled or rejected, always just leads to more twisted desire. That's what we're seeing in Potiphar's wife here. She is in a rage against the reality that Joseph is more righteous, just, than her. You see that connection between Judah and Tamar? Except, here's the difference, she does not have a spiritual awakening like Judah. She does not relent from her injustice. And thus she plays the victim. That is, she takes what she had done to Joseph and she spins it as though it was what he had done to her. Okay? She lies that he raped her. She uses false evidence, the robe. She stacks the jury by telling the men of the household. She wields ethnic prejudice. This Hebrew just wanted to laugh at me. See it woven in there? She spends it all then to provoke her husband. You brought him among us. And so this is all very calculated, not just to cover things up, but to bring revenge on Joseph. She knows that her husband will have to act and that the only option would be the death penalty. She knows this. 
And the one saving grace seems to be that perhaps Potiphar actually didn't quite believe his wife against Joseph's proven character because he only throws him into prison instead of kills him. And you know what that does? It puts Joseph right back into the pit, which may have felt worse than death. May have felt like worse than death to Joseph because of all the trauma that it brought back up. Why would God let that happen? Like, why is it that God's faithful servant can be blameless and the reward is the pit? Why is overcoming one temptation met by an even greater temptation? Do you see the greater temptation here? Anybody see it? Everybody read Genesis 39. They're like, Potiphar's wife, there's the temptation. But man, that is nothing in comparison to the temptation I'm about to tell you. Joseph could literally run from her. But you know what he could not run from? Despair. The kind of despair that that flows from confusion, darkness, loss, and pain. Listen, only some of you who are following Jesus will in your lifetime experience an unexpected, aggressive sexual advance. But you know what all of you will experience at some point in your lifetime? The kind of circumstances that will make you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the harder you follow after him, the more you may feel it. Well, thanks a lot, Pastor. That's depressing. Close this sermon and head out the door. Try to forget about this one. Go back and listen to Genesis 38. It was encouraging. But maybe this is not depressing. Not if you understand why. Why it works this way. Why is it that in Acts 14, Paul, after being stoned and thought dead, stands up, and I just get the picture like Mr. Potato Head. He's like putting his nose back in place in his ears and picking up his arms and all this stuff because he's half dead from all this. Why is it that in that moment, he stands up and the word tells us he encourages the disciples to continue in the faith and says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Why does it have to be this way? Because this is how you grow. This is how you grow the one thing. Let me give you an example, an illustration that I like to call James and the giant artichoke heart. Okay? Somebody needs to write this into a children's storybook. Now, many of you know James and Amanda Belmonte, beloved former members of Antioch, who moved to Pennsylvania even though we threatened to take them hostage. Okay? (laughs) Now, before they moved, we had a a, kind of a final uh, parting gathering, and James, who is from an Italian background and is from New York City, um, loves Italian food and believes that it is like the only food, of course. And so he brought uh, an artichoke heart. Has anybody ever eaten an artichoke heart? No, I didn't say dip. I said artichoke heart, okay? So he brings in this thing that comes on this tray. You see the tray. All right, and it looks like this blooming onion from Outback, okay? Like, what in the world is this thing? And he teaches us how to eat it. Now, he's eaten one before, so he knows that there's glory deep in the heart somewhere in that thing. 
but we never eat one. We're like, I don't know about this. So you start to pull the petals away one by one, and you kind of scrape off the, the I don't know what you would call it, membrane. Now, that's helping the illustration a lot. It's just some sort of substance you scrape off the petals. All right, you're already questionable about this like, with, like I am too. So you do all this, and you're throwing these petals away, and it becomes this pile of, of, of petally mess all around the artichoke heart. There, you're seeing it there. And then you get down finally to the heart, and there is, I don't know how to describe it, but like this fur, literally like fur around the heart. You can't eat that part, thank God. But what you do is you like pull it away. But the thing is, you've got all this petal membrane stuff on your fingers. And so as you pull it away, it's like sticking to your fingers like feathers. Like, what in the world's going on with this, okay? And then you, but you get to the artichoke heart, and, and there it is. All that work is for this, this glorious thing called the artichoke heart. So for us, like, we didn't quite make it all the way to the artichoke heart, all right? But James, knowing what's there, he's like, all right. And you see this look on his face that's kind of like, whatever. He kind of he withdraws from the conversation, puts this thing in front of him, and just goes to town. He goes to town until he gets to the artichoke heart and enjoys it, okay? What, what's the point of, of this illustration? What's this? When God allows losses into our lives that pull the petals away, that is physical infirmities, unclear direction, the deaths of loved ones, unresolved conflict, social and political uncertainty, failure, disillusionment, isolation. When God allows the losses into our lives that pull those petals away, When we press on toward the heart instead of fixating on the mess, there's a growing momentum toward that one thing. Okay? And when you've gotten a taste for that one thing already, like James, then you trust that it's worth pressing on for. Okay? And I think that's how Joseph grows when he's in the pit. God brings him back to the place of like, oh, wait a minute. This is familiar. I've been here before. But more importantly, he was here before. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Like you can picture the scene here that the story provides, but let me help you picture the scene that the language provides. We read here that the Lord quote, showed him steadfast love. The verb for showed him communicates literally to spread over. And this term steadfast love refers to God's covenant love, the love that goes back to what he committed to Abraham. So here's Joseph with his robe literally torn away and his life figuratively torn away. Like he's naked, and as Psalm 105 tells us, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron. And yet, 
What is spread over him? God's covenant love. Not just in that he becomes successful again, but in that the Lord was with him. Even if I don't get the success in this situation, if you're with me, that's enough. The worst thing here was still becoming the best thing. So listen, you who follow the God of Joseph, listen to these words from the old hymnist William Cowper who struggled with depression in an era where there wasn't a lot of help for struggles with depression. He writes these amazing words in this hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. I know that I talk about suffering a whole lot up here and my story is a lot of suffering. And it can be discouraging and weighty to you who sit under this teaching to think, man, when am I going to get blasted by this pit or this terrible thing that's coming my way? But I just want to hear, want you to hear this, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. This is how you grow the one thing. Three weeks ago, Blue Sky Studios, the producers of Ice Age, released this 30-second short film to commemorate the conclusion of the franchise. And it was aptly titled, The End. Okay? Anybody seen this? No? Okay. Well, let me show it to you, if it works. How do two decades of drama finally come to an end? <laughs> By Scrat, the saber-toothed squirrel, finally getting his acorn. The pursuit was over. He's at last able to fully enjoy his deepest desire. He finally has the one thing. I love it. I love it. And look, I don't mean to insult your intelligence or your good looks today. But every single one of you was made to be like Scrat, okay? Perfectly designed for one overarching and ever-increasing desire, Jesus Christ. But here's where my preaching departs from those old Scrat sermons from college. Before, I would have built all the way up to this moment in order to say, Now go pursue him! Pour your life into it! Go after him! Do it! But now I want to say this to you. Go seeing him pursue you. Big difference. 
And that's the message of Genesis 39. Listen to this. Joseph is stunning to us as he goes from the beloved son in his father's house to the humiliation of slavery in Egypt. And yet that is nothing compared to the eternally beloved son of God voluntarily humiliating himself. Not counting equality with God a thing to be maintained, but taking on the form of a slave. Philippians 2. Like Joseph is stunning to us as he finds the gracious, unearned favor of God under his Egyptian master, and the Lord prospers him. And yet that is nothing compared to the young boy Jesus, already having lived the life of a hated refugee, and yet growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2, because it was promised, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53. Now Joseph is stunning to us as he faces what is an unbelievable temptation. And he like flawlessly overcomes it by remaining faithful to God. And yet, like, that is nothing compared to the young man Jesus, ground down by 40 days in the desert, put to the test by Satan himself, and yet so perfectly overcoming it that it might be said of him, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4. Like, Joseph is stunning to us as his reward for being a blameless and faithful servant is to be thrown into prison without trial, though his life is spared. And yet that is nothing compared to Jesus, who is condemned to death without a shred of evidence, so that the word might be fulfilled, they hated him without a cause. John 15. Like G- Joseph is stunning to us as his robe of honor is unjustly pulled off him once again. And yet that is nothing compared to Jesus. Brutally lacerated, wrapped in a purple robe, mocked long enough for that robe to begin to bandage and seal his bleeding wounds. And then he has that robe ripped off of him as he is ushered to the place of the skull, bearing his own cross John 15 like Joseph is stunning to us as the trauma of another pit brings him to a far greater temptation than Potiphar's wife the temptation to despair and yet that is nothing compared to Jesus hanging from a cross the fullness of God taking the trauma of the full wrath of God and yet crying out ladies who were in the Bible study this morning, you heard this word, crying out, not in unbelieving despair, but in faith-filled lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet into your hands I commit my spirit. Matthew 27. Behold the one with all power, using it not to serve himself, but to bless you. Behold the man naked in the pit, and yet God's covenant love spread over him so that he rises. Behold the seed of Abraham. Bless him, and you'll be blessed. Think of it like this. Even though Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, they seemed but a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. 
His desire for her was so great that enduring seven years of hard labor was a joy. How was it that Jesus endured the cross instead of giving in to the temptation to bail out? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You see, this this holds the key to Jesus becoming your one thing. Seeing that you became his one thing. You became his Rachel. So don't walk away half killing yourself to earn his desire for you. Walk away half wrecked in your deepest desires because you see that he is pursuing you. And after all the decades of drama, how will it all finally come to an end? By you finally getting him face to face forever. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the joy that was set before me to honor my Father, to fulfill my desire, to have you forever. This is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he said, this this cup marks the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread, you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today we are announcing that Jesus Christ is our one thing. That's what this table is for. That's our tradition here at Antioch. It's for baptized believers to come forward, to break off a piece of bread, to dip it into the juice. There's gluten-free available on this side. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer, we would invite you, instead of coming to this table, to come to Christ himself, who has the power to change you at the deepest level of desire. So that your desire is not for yourself, but for him forever. There'll be pastors in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning. We thank you so much for the vision of not some cartoon squirrel but how even the vision of a cartoon squirrel can point us to the glorious reality of a Savior who came with his heart full of one desire, to glorify you, to fulfill your purposes, to be the seed of Abraham that would bless all the families of the world. And we are here today as glad evidence of his finished work. Thank you so much for what he's done. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for his heart's desire. Let us be moved today, Lord, by his desire for us to have us, to have all of us, all the way down to our deepest desires. Lord, I pray that in this moment you would do a mysterious and supernatural work through the power of your word and your spirit. You move in the hearts of people that they might come before you, though it may feel very normal, though they may not be feeling 
much affection for you. But they would come before you, walking forward to this table and saying, I want to want you more. I want you to be my one thing, my deepest desire. Lord, help me to grow in that. And Lord, that there may be people here today who have not yet set their one desire upon you. Would you help them, Lord, to come to you, turning away for the temptations that draw them back into a life of sin. But turn toward you and say, I see that you've set your desire on me, and I want to set my desire on you. Come, forgive me, change me, set me free to know you and to have you both now and one day forever. Have your way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.